Hey, this is Doc Washburn. People ask us all the time, what happened to me? We're producing video interviews. They're very time-consuming. We hope to bring some interns on board to help us soon, help us to catch up and go back to doing episodes more often. In the meantime, we apologize for the inconvenience. Here's the audio to our latest video interview, which is already posted on the Doc Washburn YouTube channel. Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show. The Regnery Publishing Company has a wonderful, long-running series of books called The Politically Incorrect Guides. If you went to public school like I did, they're very helpful in learning what actually happened in our country over the years, as opposed to what the teachers' unions wanted us to think happened. Regnery has put out The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History, Christianity, the Civil War, Communism, Global Warming, Islam, and a whole bunch of other topics. And now... Their new book is The Politically politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court, easy for me to say, co-written by John Yu and Robert J. Delahunty. Mr. Delahunty is a fellow of the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life in Washington, D.C. He held the Lejeune Chair of Law at the University of St. Thomas Law School until his retirement. He served in the U.S. Department of Justice for 17 years, and he was Deputy General Counsel in the White House Office of Homeland Security. So it's an honor to welcome Robert J. Delahunty to the Doc Washburn Show today. How are you today, sir? I'm well. Thank you very much, Doc Washburn. It's uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here on your program. And Thank to you very speak much. To your audience. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Now, as we tape today's interview, it's June 30th, 2023, the last day the Supreme Court hands down decisions for this 2022-2023 term. And there have been some pretty momentous decisions recently, haven't there? Absolutely, in the last two days. So what um, are we... Uh, go, go right ahead. Today, this morning, they struck down uh, Biden's uh, student debt forgiveness program, um, which is uh, an enormous decision and the fourth time in a row that this administration has gone much too far in the exercise of executive powers and has had to be rebuked and chastened by the Supreme Court. Um, this is going to affect student debtors throughout the country. The nationwide impact um, is at least $430 billion. That's a major decision. There was also this morning uh, a case involving the free speech rights of a woman in Colorado who wants to start up a web designing business, but who has made it clear uh, she does not want, for reasons of freedom of speech and freedom of religion, uh, to do web designs for uh, same-sex couples who are marrying. She will serve uh, same-sex. Uh, she will serve LGBTQ people uh, for all other purposes, but not for that one. And the Supreme Court uh, upheld her free speech rights, her expressive rights, to decline to provide that kind of service to that customer group. So, and then yesterday, of course, there was the major decision about uh, student admissions into uh, colleges, the Harvard case, where the Supreme Court uh, ruled basically that we have a colorblind constitution and that institutions like Harvard that have federal funds or public institutions like the other defendant, the North Carolina University system, they have to comply with the Constitution's mandate of colorblindness. Right. So if I recall correctly, Joe Biden had said more than once 
I don't really have the executive power just to forgive student debts. And then he kind of decided, ah, what the heck, I'll do it anyway. Let the courts decide it. Um, it, It's just amazing to me because I understand that Supreme Court only um, entertains like maybe about 1% of the the cases it gets. I think they get something like 8,000 cases a, a year, and they tend to take about 80. And it's always, you're always wondering, you know, what, what they're actually going to, going to look at. But I guess in the case of the student loan situation, the executive overreach was so outrageous that you had justices saying, look, we, we, we got to take this. And again, um, we're seeing some six to three decisions in which it looks like, unfortunately, the three are saying, well, the heck with the Constitution. I mean, we, we need to do this for, for, for reasons. Am I, am I being too simplistic here? No, no. Um, look, the Biden administration in the past two and a half years or so has been slapped down three times before on basically the same grounds that the court used to strike down the student loan forgiveness program today. They had to know. Uh, that what they were doing with the loan forgiveness program was illegal because it's a replay of three earlier decisions where they invoked the COVID uh, emergency to ram through administratively uh, programs that had a, would have had a huge impact on American life without going to Congress. I mean, they barely nod to Congress. So they did that three times before, and today's decision just reminds them of the fact that Congress is an essential part of our American government, and the executive cannot just nod to it and go and do what it pleases, even if there is some kind of emergency. It's got to get, when it comes to uh, decisions, policy decisions, that have an enormous financial and, and, and social and political impact on the country. Uh, Congress is part of the U.S. government and it needs to be brought in. And it basically, Congress, not the president, uh, makes the calls primarily in domestic policy. And Biden was not going to do that. Look, I mean, there are people out there like AOC who say we're going to fight the court to the last minute if it doesn't go along with the student debt forgiveness program, well, she doesn't have to fight the court. She could get her colleagues in the House to pass legislation that authorized Biden to do what he did or decide how much student loan to forgive themselves. That's a congressional, a legislative decision. It's not for the uh, president or the Department of Education, not unless Congress signs off. Right. And in the case of the, um, the Christian web designer, yeah. Again, it's so troubling to see in the dissent by the three justices uh, the idea that the First Amendment really doesn't matter to them because they want to make some things happen. And um, there have been uh, today and yesterday, I think today with Gorsuch and yesterday with Clarence Thomas, some blistering denunciations of the dissents. Maybe you could tell the viewers a little bit about that. Sure. Um, the case out of Colorado, the web designer case, um, 
actually started out as a freedom of religion case, but wound up in the Supreme Court as a freedom of speech case. There had been an earlier case involving a bakery in Colorado that was decided as a freedom of religion case. Um, but strictly speaking, today's decision is a free speech case. And what the court did uh, in a masterful uh, opinion by Justice Gorsuch, one of Trump's appointees. What the court did was to reaffirm very, very long-standing um, positions about freedom of speech. In this country, we do not have a political orthodoxy. You are free to speak your mind. That's the general rule. And the government cannot force you to say things that are contrary to your beliefs or conscience. Uh, even if the government has a legitimate aim, like uh, purging the marketplace of discrimination against uh, LGBTQ groups, uh, this went way too far, uh, and it was forcing this woman, the plaintiff, as a condition of operating her business, starting her business, to say things, to lend her artistic talents and gifts to causes and purposes um, that she profoundly disagreed with for reasons of conscience. And by the way, she was not just going to turn down business offers that came from LGBTQ couples. She was going to turn down business uh, where the contract would have required her to um, um, depart from her religious beliefs on other grounds. I mean, you know, people who wanted her to make a web design in celebration of cruelty, for example. Uh, she wouldn't do that either. It was not. It was directed, her, her objections were directed against people who wanted to use her talents, her artistic gifts, her speech, right, in a way that was deeply objectionable to her conscience. And the government couldn't make her do that. That was what the court ruled today. Yeah, and and, and good for them, too. Um, you know, you, you were mentioning, uh, of course, Gorsuch was a Trump appointee as uh, Kavanaugh and Amy uh, Coney Barrett. and. Uh, but you know, every every once in a while, some of these appointees that we're we're so sure about, um, you know, have been disappointments. I remember one of the things that I was saying before the Dobbs decision was leaked, um, when a lot of conservatives were so disappointed um, with some of the decisions some of Trump's um, appointees had signed on to, and people were telling me, Doc. Roe's not going to be overturned. We can't trust these people. And I said, well, here's the thing, though. Something I notice, and I, I'm no lawyer. I'm no son of a lawyer, but I try to pay attention to people like you guys. One of the things I notice each time one of these people is up for, for a confirmation hearing, uh, liberal legal scholars were concerned because Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett, and Brett Kavanaugh had all said publicly and I can't remember whether they were uh, dissents when they were on lower federal courts or maybe law review journal articles, but they had all publicly said that Roe was a badly decided decision. And I said, that's one of the things that concerned liberal politicians and liberal legal folks. And regardless of how they may have disappointed you, don't be surprised if they vote to to overrule Roe, and of course, happily they 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 did. What was it a, a surprise to you? No, no. I think I mean 
the book that John, you and I have just published came out this week, The Politically yeah. Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. One of the main themes of it is that the post-Trump court, we may have the first book about the post-Trump court with the three new appointments. Yeah. The post-Trump court is making a determined effort to separate out law from politics. Law has its own integrity. It's independent of politics. Um, and the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade, is kind of a testament to that. The Supreme Court was not deciding in Dobbs whether abortion was good or bad policy, wise or unwise. It was deciding whether the Constitution embodies a right to abortion. That's a legal question. You can believe that there is no such right, but believe in abortion as a matter of policy, and many people do. The Supreme Court, in other words, is often deciding not the merits of a policy, but who makes the decision, right? It wants to keep the traffic in the right lanes. In this case, in the Dobbs case, it decided that the correct decision maker about abortion policy was not itself. It was not nine unelected judges, lawyers. It was the people of the states or maybe Congress, but in the case, it was not their lane. To occupy, it was a policy call, not a legal call. And they have insisted on that distinction again and again. So when you read headlines like, you know, Supreme Court uh, dooms us to suffer from global warming, the answer is absolute rubbish. The Supreme Court is saying, in that kind of case, we are not the decision maker. The decision maker is Congress, or maybe it's an administrative agency that has been delegated power by Congress, but it's not us. It, it, it opens the channels for the correct decision maker to call the policy. Yeah. That's not undemocratic. That's the very opposite. That is democratizing our, re-democratizing our political institutions. Exactly. Exactly. Now, several months before the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus uh, Casey was handed down, of course, uh, it was widely spread there in the media. A draft copy of Dobbs was leaked that had never happened before in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court. I think it was Justice Thomas who said it felt like a real betrayal of trust. Overnight, abortion activists started protesting outside conservative justices' homes which is against federal law, and yet federal marshals said they were under orders not to enforce that law, not to make arrests. Are you concerned going forward about the physical safety of Supreme Court justice? Absolutely, I'm concerned about it. Justice Alito spoke a few months ago about the leak, and he echoed the idea that this is a betrayal of trust. It's not precedented in the history of the court. It disrupts the work of the court. It makes free and frank and open conversations and dialogue between the justices much, much harder. Uh, and Alito said really two things. He said, first of all, um, this is this is a disgrace, and I think I know who is responsible, but I'm not going to say what I think because I don't believe I have the kind of evidence, the kind of proof that would be needed for me responsibly to make a public statement. That was the first thing he said. The other thing he said was sometimes he or his conservative colleagues were blamed for the leak, and he said that is absolute nonsense. The leak endangered our lives. Why would we have done it? So we're not responsible. This wasn't an attempt by us to lock in the majority 
somebody else did it, but he doesn't feel he can tell us who he thinks it is. But yeah, the, the, the safety, the physical safety, the privacy, the family lives of the conservative justices have been endangered, and it is the height of irresponsibility of Merrick Garland. And I speak as a veteran of almost 18 years in the Department of Justice and the executive branch. It is the height of irresponsibility for Merrick Garland not to order protection for the justices, unless he thought that the federal law that you referred to was unconstitutional, and he's never said that. Yeah, well, I mean, when he was asked about it uh, in a committee hearing a few months ago, he said the marshals uh, do protect the justices, and and one of the members of Congress was trying to drill down about how come there haven't been any arrests. Oh, they they you know they have the authority to make arrests if they if they need to, but the marshals are like, no, we're under orders not to. Right. But which do you believe? I think I know what I believe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and by the way, I speak as someone, I'm kind of hot under the collar. I worked for Merrick Garland. I was a civil servant in the Clinton years, and I had a lot of respect for him. Wow. Back but then. I do not, I do not have that respect today. Uh, I mean, have you ever thought about saying, man, what happened to you? You know, I had much respect. You know, I've heard the same thing about Eric Holder back in the day when he was a judge, and and people on both sides of the political aisle had much respect for him. And then he gets the, the AG title. And, you know, I think he was the first attorney general held in contempt of Congress for, you know. That's correct. That's all the correct. Good and, 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 yeah, but people well, at the said, well, you know, he seems so fair and even-handed as, as a judge. And now look at him as, as attorney general. I mean. It's unfortunate. What, what do you think happens to these people? Well, I don't really want to speculate. Uh, my connection with Garland was professional more than personal. I did think very highly of him, and yeah. I worked quite uh, well with him. We do know that Obama nominated him for the Supreme Court after the death of Justice Scalia, and uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate did not act on the nomination, and it passed, and then there was a vacancy for President Trump to fill when he came in. And I don't know, that may have, I'm sure it had some effect on Garland, um, but whatever the cause may be, he just doesn't seem to understand how the Department of Justice that he leads is being perceived today. Coming right up, more of our interview with Robert J. Delahunty co-author of the new Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase a vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You'll be glad you did. 
I want to tell you about the best kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life and migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and the migraines went away for good. Whatever malady you're suffering from, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center. 501-279-2009 for a free consultation. They've helped so many people I know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com. Click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. Mike Lindell says because of your amazing support for MyPillow 2.0, He's expanded MyPillow's USA manufacturing and jobs. So he's clearing out his percale bed sheets by giving them to you at closeout prices. King size percale bed sheets, only $39 a set. Queen size, only $35 a set. Full size, $29. And twin size, just $25. Use promo code DWS to take advantage of this once in a lifetime offer. Right now, Mike's biggest My Slippers closeout sale ever is on. Get Mike's all-season My Slippers and Sandals at clearance prices. Mike's all-season Moccasin Slippers are just $25. Mike's My Slippers Sandals are just $19.50. They're both made with Mike's patented impact gel that absorbs and relieves pressure so you can comfortably wear them all day long. Just use promo code DWS for huge discounts. Remember, DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. We continue now with our interview with Robert J. Delahunty, co-author of the new Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. So let me ask you, for people who are wondering about the uh, unique title to this series of books, which uh, the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court is the most recent. What is it that makes a book like this politically incorrect? (laughs) Well, you know, the reality, this is no secret, the reality is that the culture is very unfavorable to conservatives, especially conservatives in the academy, and maybe most of all to conservatives in the legal academy. Uh, and so it's a kind of minority report, if you will. I mean, we are two conservative legal scholars. We've both taught and written about and practiced constitutional law for cumulatively decades. Um, and we wanted to give uh, a perspective on the new conservative majority court that was sympathetic to it, not uncritical, but sympathetic and sensitive to it. And that would appeal not just to conservatives, but to open-minded people of any kind or people who wanted just to learn more about the structure of our government, the nature of our constitution and the role of the court in that. So part of the book is about the place of the court in American 
government and society and what it has done in even the distant past. And then much of it is designed to review the cases, the main cases from last year, including the abortion decision, gun rights, uh, and the case about administrative law so that people are brought up to date. Um, and then we, at the end, we, we offer some suggestions, speculations about where we think the court is heading. By the way, our speculations so far have been proven right. Yeah, now, yesterday, um, the 29th, the, the case about Harvard, the, the, the 63, um, did, did you find it fascinating, troubling? I'm not sure what the adjective would be that you have three Supreme Court justices who are openly coming out in favor of racial discrimination. Yeah, that's, that's troubling. I mean, you could assume that you should give Harvard the benefit of the doubt that it, its intentions were good. But, you know, there are much better and certainly much more constitutional ways to further the objective of racial equality in this country than to use race uh, uh, and to and to pretend that somehow racial diversity um, causes intellectual diversity in our college campuses. I mean, if there's one place in America where you're not going to find much diversity of thought, much active and open debate, it's college campuses, right? So this right. is a program, this program, Harvard's original program was upheld in 1978, I think, and we've had a long track record of failure. It doesn't do what it was uh, it's supposedly intended to do. It has become de facto kind of quota. You look at some of the statistics um, that uh, Chief Justice Roberts cites in the opinion and the the uh, differentiation from one year to the next uh, in terms of admissions from particular racial groups, it's almost un- unvarying. So they're operating a kind of racial quota system, and it's bad for education. Uh, but it is also illegal and unconstitutional. We ha- we do not have a constitution that tolerates that. In fact, even the lead decision on behalf of Harvard, the Grutter case from 2003, said, well, this we will allow this experiment to run another 25 years. Well, it's 20 years, and you know now we're going back to constitutional bedrock. We're returning to a state normalcy, uh, a normalcy that applies in all other uh, programs and operations, of the government, and that is race neutrality. Uh, your race is not constitutionally supposed to matter if the government awards you a contract to do business. Uh, so it shouldn't matter if a public actor like North Carolina is deciding whether to admit you to college or not. It's just not relevant. It's not permissible uh, yeah. as a factor. We, we fought a civil war and had the Reconstruction Era amendments to achieve race neutrality. Of course, we didn't do that in fact, but that was the aspiration and that is the law. And in that 03 decision, Clarence Thomas had a, uh, a biting dissent saying, yeah. oh, okay, so the majority is saying we'll let this unconstitutional thing go on for another 25 years. That doesn't make it constitutional. Why, you know, if it's going to be unconstitutional 25 years from now, why is it unconstitutional? Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They kind of suspended the Constitution for 25 years. Mercifully, we're five years ahead of restoring it to where they impliedly recognize it ought to be. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you have alluded to the administrative state a couple of times. Yes. And uh, I remember um, 
A guy named Robert Spencer came out with a book judging all the presidents uh, a few years ago. And I, I learned something I had no idea about. Um, I, I knew that um, President Garfield had been assassinated in 1881, but I didn't really have any idea why. And uh, apparently um, one of the things that he wanted to do was to get rid of the uh, the spoil system, the cronyism, and replace it with a civil service kind of situation where it would be more difficult for a president to fire bureaucrats. And his vice president, who became president, Chester A. Arthur, disagreed with him on that. But but when Garfield uh, passed away, Arthur's like, well, look, I didn't get elected president. Garfield got elected president. So I'm going to carry his mantle and we're going to get rid of the spoils system, what they called it, replace it with the administrative state. So what you have ever since then, you know, for gosh, 140 years now is presidents getting um, elected, especially if they're conservative and being up against this bureaucracy where it's very difficult to turn that thing around and to enact your policies that, that you want to do because you have this entrenched bureaucracy and it's very difficult to uh, fire a lot of these people. Uh, do you think anybody's ever going to be able to do anything about that? You know, first of all, I have to thank you. I did not know that about Garfield and Arthur. I did know that the Pendleton Act uh, was passed under President Arthur and that created something like today's civil service. But um, that piece of history was not familiar to me, and I'm grateful to know it. The federal bureaucracy is immense, of course. Uh, maybe we need it to carry out all the programs that the people appear to want. But what is constitutionally essential is that it should not be independent of the president and of Congress. Uh, it should execute their orders and uh, carry out their policies and not make the calls itself. It's so big and so sprawling that it's hard uh, for a president to control it, even when the bureaucrats are sympathetic to the president's views and policies. There's a story about Obama asking some bureaucrat uh, where he worked, and he mentioned his agency, and Obama said, I've never even heard of that one, right? So, um, but we knew, I mean, it's pretty clear the bureaucracy, especially the intelligence agencies and the FBI, is kind of wildly out of control. It's wildly partisan right now it is it, it's kind of an instrument for carrying out the wishes of the democratic party in many ways um but on the other hand the democrats too should be wary of this of the bureaucracy because it has a mind of its own uh, and it is not always going to go along with the policies that a democrat wants as president um but it does intervene politically. I mean, we saw that in the 2020 election. We saw that in 2016. We saw it under Obama when Lois Lerner, a bureaucrat in the um, Internal Revenue Service, um, maybe on her own, decided she would torpedo a popular political movement, the Tea Party, and she did, basically. This is unconscionable. And so will there be reforms? Yes. I think if Trump is elected, if DeSantis is elected, DeSantis has detailed um, pretty fully what he intends to do with the bureaucracy. At least the upper level of uh, the cabinet departments and the federal agencies uh, should be uh, controlled by political appointees. That's, of course, the case now, but I'm talking about numbers. I'm talking about depth. 
And I think that at least the upper levels of the tenure-protected civil service bureaucracy um, should be removable at the president's pleasure. Now, whether you need new legislation to do that or not, I don't know. Uh, but I had been in the civil service for 17 years, and let me tell you, I can tell you on the basis of my personal observation, it is wildly partisan, it is saturated with uh, left liberals, uh, and they are, and I can give you many cases, completely unwilling to execute the policies of a Republican administration. Yeah. I, I know from the 80s of cases of my colleagues who wouldn't show up to argue a case in court because they disagreed with the Reagan administration's positions. This is unacceptable in a democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And if it pleases the court, let the record reflect that if my life depended upon it, I couldn't remember the name of the Pendleton Act. So I appreciate you (laughs) filling in that gap of my knowledge. Um, Yeah. So, okay. So the whole concept of originalism, um, do you see the, the court moving toward that or away from it? And, and why should it matter? Well, it matters because it is an essential part of the effort to disentangle law and politics, which I spoke about earlier. It's essential yeah. to that um, so that the court is not entangled in matters of abortion policy, let's say, or environmental policy or public health policy, but just deals with pure legal issues. That's the function of a court. You have to have a decision maker for those purposes. Uh, And originalism helps to achieve that because it's politically neutral in a substantive way. You could be a political liberal, but a legal conservative or vice versa. Um, But what originalism does is to say to the courts, um, when you look at the Constitution and you have to interpret it, uh, your interpretation should be guided by what the original public meaning of this language was at the time it was adopted, whether 1787 or maybe in the 1860s after the Civil War or later. Um, but that's what you need to do. And once the language has been debated and discussed and fully vetted and fully understood and then adopted into the Constitution, it is the law and it remains the law until it's changed by legal procedures such as amending the Constitution. Right. Um, But until that time happens, that was the law and is the law, and your interpretation should reflect that fact. This is why some legal conservatives, Justice Scalia is a notable example, uh, caused a lot of surprise, happiness in liberal quarters, a certain amount of concern in some conservative quarters, when he seemed to be a pretty, you know, a civil libertarian. That's how he understood um, the Constitution um, in light of the original public um, meaning of it. Um, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get politically conservative or liberal results. It is, in that sense, a neutral method of interpretation. And that helps you to restore the place of law and to liberate it from political entanglements. Yeah, I know when uh, Roe v. Wade was handed down 7-2, to two, January 22, 1973, um, one of the two dissenters, uh, Byron White, called it a, a raw use of judicial power. Correct. Which, you know, obviously um, it was a, a abiding dissent. He's basically just saying, look, right. you guys are acting like a legislature, and, and that's, you know, that's not what the court is supposed to be doing. 
That was the main criticism of Roe for 50 years or so. When you sit down and read it, you think you're reading a bill that has passed through the state legislature of Arizona or Minnesota. You don't think that you're reading um, a legal document, uh, a constitutional interpretation. It yeah. was a, an assertion of raw legislative power from the start. And frankly, uh, I think Justice White's dissent there was classic, but Roe versus Wade was junk law. It was just junk law. And it, you, know, you, could, you could try to rehabilitate it. You could try to reform it. You could try to rewrite it. The Casey decision in the 1990s did all of those things. Junk law stayed junk law. Exactly. And, and so maybe this brings us to a, a concept that it would be nice for you to explain to our viewers. And I, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, is it stereo decisis? Is that how you yes. say it? Mm-hmm. So this seems to be a concept that when you're talking about decisions like Roe, that the liberal politicians, when grilling a conservative Supreme Court nominee and the liberal uh, law scholars want to put above the Constitution. Where, where does stereo decisis come from and, and how has the court struggled with it? Because I know it was one of the reasons that um, subsequent courts didn't want to touch Roe, for instance. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, we lawyers use Latin like stare decisis to justify the big bucks we get. It just means holding with the precedents, um, following the precedents. And that, in the end, turned out to be the main argument in defense of Roe. It was as though the court was saying, well, this is what we decided, so we don't have to explain it any further. The very fact that that's what we said means that is what we will continue to say. Where does the doctrine originate? It originates in the common law, really at a time when um, there weren't a whole lot of law books or legal texts, and so the common law courts in England and here um, tended to follow precedent pretty closely. Um, and it also is, I think, historically rooted in the idea of natural law. Judicial decisions were seen as, ideally at least, a reflection of the natural law, and what past judges had decided was treated by later judges as pretty good evidence of what the natural law was. It wasn't controlling. It wasn't dispositive. There were reversals of earlier mistakes in the law by later judges. So it was not an inexorable command to follow precedent in the common law, but earlier judges were respected by their successors and their decisions were treated respectfully. And that's the origin of the idea of precedent. But it it doesn't um, mean that you cannot correct errors. Um, And it is true that uh, in the later days of Roe, uh, while I was still on the books, um, there were attempts to ratchet up the doctrine of stare decisis, ratchet up the doctrine of precedence, and to make it almost impossible to change the law and to correct constitutional errors. But correctly, the uh, Dobbs Court decided that um, Roe was wrong, it was monumentally wrong, and the purposes of finding the correct meaning of the Constitution required the court to overrule it. And, you know, everybody on the court, left or right, has voted, uh, maybe not the very newest members, but everybody else on the court um, has voted um, to overturn some important constitutional precedent. The left wants to see precedents about campaign finance overturned. Um, Some of the dissents 
um, yesterday and today um, are, I think, very troubling if you believe that precedent is sacrosanct. I mean, the free speech case today, this morning, the web designer case, uh, the court relies extremely heavily on its precedents, and it is the dissent who wants to up, upend them. Um, or yesterday, although there were accusations that um, the Harvard case uh, uprooted lots of precedents, it didn't. There was not a single uh, precedent that was displaced. Uh, the court was applying a long-held standard, strict scrutiny, to overturn uh, Harvard and North Carolina's racial preferences programs. In fact, in the in that case, I would say it was clearly the dissent who was disrespectful of precedent because they wanted to allow um, race conscious actions to as reparation as 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 uh, re- remedies for society wide discrimination, which of course we have had in this country. But the precedents, even the ones that they cited, were clearly against that. That's yeah. one of the knock-on effects, by the way, of the Harvard decision. Um, reparations proposals like the one in California are clearly unconstitutional as of yesterday. Note to self, it's starry decisis, not stary decisis. <laughs> <laughs> well, your Latin is as good as mine. <laughs> um, so uh, do you think the founding fathers foresaw the U.S. Supreme Court to have as much power and influence in society as it has. And, and did Marbury versus Madison 1803 decision lay a foundation that, that maybe they weren't expecting? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I guess my answer is, I no, they didn't expect it would have the kind of role that it now has. Um, in fact, in the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton said it was going to be the weakest branch because it didn't have the means to enforce his orders. Um, but they did quite pretty clearly consider it to be a co-equal branch with Congress and the president. Yeah. They went to great lengths to protect its independence so that the kind of attacks that are being mounted today by Biden, by Schumer, by Senator Whitehouse, of Rhode Island, or um, Senator Durbin of Illinois, they would have found them appalling. They want to compromise the independence of the judiciary. Um, one thing that has uh, happened, though, in the interval since the founding in 1787 and now is, as you say, Marbury versus Madison, in which the court affirmed that it had the power of judicial review and could therefore strike down acts of Congress that it found to be inconsistent with the Constitution. Uh, The framers did expect that it would do that, and Alexander Hamilton does describe that function in the Federalist Papers. There were some pre-constitutional cases, um, including one, for example, from Rhode Island, um, where the judges of the state courts had ruled that various state laws were unconstitutional under their state rules. Um, But those assertions of judicial prerogative to review statutes were a little hesitant, and there was a lot of pushback against them. And it is not explicitly mentioned, that power, in Article 3 of the Constitution. On the other hand, uh, it is certainly there. 
by necessary implication, and John Marshall proved that, I think, in Marbury Madison, and it's been accepted by the other branches, and that is the way we have been governed for well over two centuries. Yeah, and if I recall correctly, there was a particular Supreme Court decision, I can't remember which one it was, but uh, when Andrew uh, Jackson yeah. was president, and it it certainly went against what he wanted, and um, yeah. in expressing how reticent he was to actually go along with the decision, I think he asked someone, well, how many divisions does Chief yeah. Justice John Marshall have? Right. This was a case about the Cherokee Indians. And okay. Notoriously, Andrew Jackson was uh, an Indian fighter and probably an Indian hater. Uh, it's not completely clear that he said, you know, well, John Rush Marshall wrote that decision, let it enforce it, but probably those were his actual sentiments. But mercifully, uh, until at least Biden, we had presidents who would typically fall in line with the Supreme Court's constitutional decisions. More of our interview with Robert J. Delahunty, co-author of the new Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court, is straight ahead. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. They don't tend to depreciate over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. Andrew Sorcini with Beverly Hills Precious Metals has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Beverly Hills Precious Metals brings precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Mike Flynn told us about them, and they are our gold buyer of choice. To find out more, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Make sure you ask about the general Mike Flynn silver coin and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Beverly Hills Precious Metals helps folks protect their finances, wealth, and investments. If you want to drop your big liberal cell phone carrier, Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, is a perfect solution. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. And switching to Patriot Mobile usually only takes 15 to 20 minutes. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you shift your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Yeah, let me ask you something. Why continue shopping big box stores if you can get the items you need 
from a family-owned company. Now you can get around this crazy inflation by shopping factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Americans are walking away from the big box conglomerates and deciding to buy only USA. Join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. These products include fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone, this beef is known as Never Ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Email us at buyonlyusa at proton.me, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. buyonlyusa at proton.me. And now, the conclusion of our interview with Robert J. Delahunty, co-author of the new Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. One of the things I think that's frustrating for those of us who are not in the legal profession, well, I guess it'd be frustrating for people in the legal profession, is sometimes it seems that the same court can come down with decisions that seem to contradict each other. And and maybe it's just um, my ignorance about the law and the Constitution. But I'm delighted that they told Harvard, look, you, you can't racially discriminate. But then they're telling state legislatures um, that, well, now, wait a minute. Um, we don't like the way that you drew a new map based on the most recent census for congressional districts because the implication being that, that black folks are some kind of monolith. And so you have to uh, draw more uh, minority-heavy congressional districts because the implication being that black folks think alike are going to vote the same way. And to me... The racial discrimination you told Harvard that it can't do, it's almost like you're telling state legislatures you'd better do when it comes to drawing congressional districts. Am I oversimplifying things? Uh, Well, um, that's a hard question. Uh, You're referring, I think, to the court's recent decision from Alabama about the Voting Rights Act. Um, And some of the members of the court themselves, especially Justice Thomas, raised the very difficulty that you have. Yeah. Um, how is this decision, which certainly um, reflects the use of race, consistent with the constitutional rule of race neutrality? Uh, the, let me just say the best I can do to defend what the court did in the Alabama case is this. Uh, Congress enacted the Voting Rights Act in 1982, um, the Supreme Court interpreted it in uh, a certain way in 1986. Congress did not overturn the court's construction of it, which it could have if it had not found it satisfactory, but it left it undisturbed. Um, the doctrine of stare decisis, which you discussed a little bit earlier, has a part that deals with statutes as well as the Constitution. Uh, and it basically holds that where the court has interpreted a statute in a certain way, and Congress has left that interpretation undisturbed, then the court should adhere to that earlier interpretation. So what the court thought it was doing in Alabama uh, was to reaffirm 
its longstanding interpretation. 1982 is what, 40 years ago? Yeah. 41. And so it said Congress um, seems to have agreed with the way we interpreted the statute then. So we'll uh, reapply that interpretation here. That is statutory, stare decisis. And what we're doing um, is uh, Congress's intent and what we're trying to further uh, is to create equal opportunity for um, candidates of different races to win seats in the Congress, not equal results. Alabama has, I think, seven members of the House of Representatives, uh, and uh, the population is one-fourth African-American. So if it wanted equality of results, there would be probably two congressional seats set aside for African-American, where there were majority African-American districts. Uh, The court said, we're not going to insist on that. Um, The one out of seven ratio is not inherently unacceptable, but we think that because of racial polarization in voting in Alabama, um, black supported candidates, not necessarily black candidates, but black supported candidates don't get a fair shot. They don't have an equal opportunity to win. So we're going to toss the districting plan that uh, does denies them an equal opportunity. Now, maybe that's right. Maybe it's wrong. But in a sense, it's a conservative decision because it defers to Congress and Congress seems to have accepted that understanding of the Voting Rights Act, and it is concerned also with equal opportunity as distinct from equal results. So uh, I can't, you know, I don't find that a really egregious decision at all. Just not as bad as I thought. Well, that's reassuring, yeah. So we're speaking with Robert J. Delahunty. The, The book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court, and in your new book, you outline uh, what you call an overrule wish list. What are some of the top cases you'd like to see corrected? Well, the Bakke case would be my exhibit A, but that, of course, um, uh, it wasn't overruled. Bakke and Grutter were not overruled, but they were kind of disemboweled, uh, and that would, they would have been at the top of my wish list. Um, I think the court had an obligation to insist that the Constitution is colorblind, and it did that. Um, so I'm gratified by that. I would like the court, uh, and in today's decision um, about student loans uh, is very much the kind of thing I was hoping we would get from the court. Um, the court, I think, has um, a responsibility, and I think it will execute in the future, to cut back on the administrative state uh, and to restore to Congress uh, powers that Congress has basically abdicated about deciding domestic policy. And that's, they're not any particular cases. Maybe the Chevron case would be one, but they're not, there's not, you know, I, I can't point some, to some case that has disastrous rough and say that one has got to go. But there's a line of cases where I think uh, the court should revisit the precedents and rein in the administrative state and reallocate decisional authority over domestic policy to Congress. So that's something I think we will see on the agenda uh, in the future, in the years immediately ahead. I sure hope so. In the interest of full disclosure, Alan Bakke in 1978 uh, had been denied admission to a uh, top flight uh, 
medical school in California, uh, and he filed suit over that. And so that's, uh, I, I remember, you know, I was a young man at the time, but I remember that was, was big news at, at the time. Yeah. So very big. Uh, so while not, um, explicitly overruling uh, the Baki decision, um, this this new one about Harvard de facto kind of kind of guts it. I would say, I mean, the reason it doesn't overrule Baki or Greta or the uh, Fisher case is the third in that line. The reason it doesn't overrule them is because they all purported to apply a standard of review called strict scrutiny. Yeah. And Traditionally, historically, when a court reviewed a racial classification through strict scrutiny, it struck it down. In the 70s and earlier, lawyers used to say, well, strict scrutiny is um, strict in theory, but fatal in fact. In other words, the court just wouldn't tolerate racial classifications. Over the years, starting with Bakke, the court purported to be applying strict scrutiny, but it was a very watered-down version of it. Uh, And yesterday it said, no, we're going to apply it, and we're going to apply it as the real deal. So um, in that sense, it left Bakke, or Justice Lewis Powell's opinion in Bakke, which was the influential and controlling decision, left it on the books. It left Grutter on the books because they both claimed to be applying strict scrutiny, but the court did that yesterday in the full-throated historical version of that doctrine. So for those of us who aren't really familiar with uh, Grutter or Fisher de- decisions, what what did the court say strict scrutiny was? What, what is that, that principle? Well, what it did there, uh, the principle is, is that when you're, a court is reviewing for constitutionality, um, a legislative or administrative rule that involves race and racial preferences. The court has to ask two things about this law, this this rule. One, does it serve a compelling purpose of the government? Something like national security, let's yeah. say. Uh, or two, and two, um, is the use of race necessary to achieve this governmental objective? And it's very, very tough, very, very tough for racial classifications to survive that examination. In the past, uh, in Bakke, Powell's opinion in Bakke and in Grutter, um, the court said, well, there's a compelling purpose in using race for admissions to colleges, law schools, and so on. And that is because uh, race promotes intellectual diversity, um, and that's a compelling goal for um, for universities to follow. Uh, yesterday, the court said we have no metric to decide how far, if at all, uh, racial diversity promotes intellectual diversity. There's just no way of telling what, Justice Thomas keeps harping on this in his concurrence, what exactly are the educational benefits yeah. of a racially diverse classroom? What are the educational benefits? And how do we decide how much benefit results from using race in admissions. And then um, the second prong of strict scrutiny is the necessity test. Is it really necessary to use race to achieve the objective, asserted objective, of intellectual diversity? And, you know, um, apart from anything else, the categories in which the races are divided 
are really pretty arbitrary. And this is a point the Chief Justice makes. Like Asian is a category. Well, that embraces people from India and Pakistan as well as people people whose families, whose origins are from India and Pakistan, as well as people whose origins are in China or Korea or Japan. And what's the common denominator? So, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> and really, and the truth of the matter is it isn't necessary to use race in higher education, um, even to promote, never mind educational benefits, even to promote the idea of greater racial equality in this country. There are a whole lot of things, positive things, that can be done to do that without introducing race uh, into the admissions practices. For example, Justice Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in the Grutter case, she, of course, signed on to the majority opinion, but she said, isn't our real problem here with primary schools and the deficits in primary and secondary school education that so many African-American children are exposed to? Why didn't we try to improve the quality of education at that level instead of trying to fix things at the end of one's educational experience in college? And she's right. Yeah. And that's that would be constitutionally acceptable to do that. Yeah. To upgrade our educational system at the the K through 12 level or K through 7 level. Yeah. Hence the school choice uh, movement, which she probably would did not want to sign on to. Um, so let me ask you with, with the, um, with the case of the, uh, the website developer out of Colorado. And we remember the masterpiece cake shop uh, case also out of Colorado. What do you think the future looks like for religious business owners who don't want to be hired for LGBT celebrations that violate their beliefs? Well, uh, it depends on whether the, State law requires them to make certain avowals or to uh, express opinions or beliefs that are contrary to their conscientious convictions. Um, if the if the law, the anti-discrimination law requires them to do that, then that law is invalid. But for other things, like I, I sell widgets, okay? I The state says, well, if you sell widgets to a general market, you have to sell them to... Um, people regardless of their race or religion or sexual orientation. Okay, there's nothing expressive about selling widgets. That's not a free speech issue, and I don't have a choice. The customer comes in, maybe let's say I don't want to um, sell my widgets to Muslim people. Okay, and someone comes in and says, hi, I'm Muslim, I want to buy a widget. i got to sell the widget, and there's no free speech or freedom of religion aspect to that. That's a straightforward commercial decision, and I've got to make the sale. Right. Yeah, I I understand that, but um, I I think one of the things that uh, the the dissenters on these free speech issues point to is, well, LGBT are protected class of people, and and we look back at uh, Lawrence versus Texas in 03, which told the states you can no longer have laws against sodomy. And then the Obergefell decision telling states uh, you can't really define marriage as one man and one woman. Frankly, I I don't think they told states you can define marriage at all anymore. And so that the the concern is that elections have consequences. And if you have another one or two Democratic terms and you get some 
Supreme Court justices who get to an old age and retire, some things could be, you know, could, could be overturned, like like the, um, the decision that came down about the Colorado website developer. I don't know. I think it would be very hard to overturn that decision. It is so powerfully reasoned and eloquently reasoned by Justice Gorsuch, and it fits in so perfectly with our American tradition of freedom of speech. You know, maybe the fountainhead of these cases, the ones that Justice Gorsuch relies on, they go back to the 1940s, the world is at war, we're fighting the Nazis, and everybody wants to rally around the flag, rightly. And so the public schools in West Virginia say, okay, children, students, you're going to have to recite the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. And the children of Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, that's against our faith. We are instructed not to worship Caesar, but only to worship God. And we believe, much as we love America, we believe that reciting the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag is the worship of a false god. It's the worship of Caesar, and we won't do it. And uh, it took two decisions, but the court eventually came around to their way of thinking. It's beautiful language. It says in America, we don't have orthodoxies, and we don't force opinions and expressions down people's throat. Those Jehovah's Witnesses' children, they're a religious minority. Maybe they're unpopular for not taking the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. But this is America, and what are we fighting the war for except to safeguard the freedom of conscience of kids like that? That's the anchorage of today's opinion about the web designer. She has our rights of speech and conscience, and it's going to be awfully hard, even for a Justice Sotomayor in the future, to overturn something like that. Well, from your lips to God's ears, I don't know where the time goes. Um, If I could squeeze in one more uh, question. Um, It has often been said that the Second Amendment protects our First Amendment rights. Um, And in blue states, uh, there have often been serious I think uh, limitations put on people's Second Amendment rights. Uh, there have been cases that have gone to the Supreme Court that have ruled that the Second Amendment actually um, means what it says, and it tends to uh, really upset liberal politicians and uh, liberal justices. What do you think the future is uh, for gun control or for what I would call the attack on the Second Amendment? Well, that's also a really interesting question. There are three chapters in our politically incorrect guide to the court that deal with gun rights, and there are three major cases going back to, I think, 2008, in which the Supreme Court has affirmed and entrenched uh, the reality of gun rights protection. It's in the Bill of Rights. uh, It's in the Second Amendment, and as far as I can think, uh, the Second Amendment is the only constitutional provision that specifically protects a particular type of property, which is guns. It says that the rights of the people to um, keep and bear arms shall be respected. And um, that's the Constitution. If you don't like it, if you want more gun regulation, then go along with Governor Newsom of California's suggestion and amend the Constitution to get rid of the Second Amendment. And I'm not even sure if you did that. 
you'd end um, all constitutionally based gun rights because there's the Ninth Amendment. And the Ninth Amendment is the kind of um, catch-all provision that says if your rights are not mentioned in the first eight amendments, that doesn't mean they're not there. There are other constitutional rights and the right of self-defense and the right to use lethal force to protect your life um, is maybe not enumerated in the text of the Constitution, but it is there and in the Ninth Amendment. Uh, and um, I would say that, too, provides a justification for uh, keeping and bearing arms for at least the purpose of armed self-defense when that is necessary. What is the future? Um, well, the court has now had three decisions on this topic, and it's um, shown that the Second Amendment is not an orphan uh, in the Bill of Rights, that it stands on the same footing as freedom of speech or freedom of religion or freedom against compulsory self-incrimination. It is there. It is alive. Uh, the full consequences of these two decisions will need to be worked out. <clears throat> Maybe another five years, six years down the road, the court will return to the Second Amendment. But for the time being, it's spoken loudly and clearly. Fantastic. And and, and yet there's the, the, the problem that, you know, whether it's with these great decisions like Heller on the Second Amendment or uh, the decision today on Harvard, that there are entities, there are municipalities, which try to ignore these Supreme Court decisions and basically say, well, sue us again. Oh, you have not just municipalities, but the President of the United States basically doing that. This is Today is the fourth time he's been slapped down on administrative excesses. Yeah, no, no, you're right, you're right. Robert J. Delahunty, the, uh, the new book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. Uh, it is a wonderful addition to a, uh, a long, uh, chain of politically incorrect guides from Regnery Publishing. Uh, it is an honor to, to have you on the program today, sir. Uh, uh we Thank wish you very much. I enjoyed it. Yeah. We, we wish you and John, you, uh, uh, Godspeed and, uh, Thank you. We, we hope you, you write uh, many more wonderful works. Uh, this book is, is brand new. It's available wherever uh, fine books are sold or wherever you get books online. The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court, Robert J. Delahunty. Uh, God bless you, sir. We appreciate you. Thank you, you very much. Thank you. So, um, uh, and I almost forgot, is, is there anything else that, that as a parting thought you would want to add to, for my viewers today? No, this has been a wonderful interview, and I'm very grateful to you for hosting me and for all that you do. Great, Grateful to you too, sir. God bless you. Thank you, and have a great weekend. Thank you. Well, it's time for today's Tweet of the Day, brought to you by Red River Auto, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice, the way you want to, online, and have it delivered to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental USA. RedRiverAuto.com Tweet of the Day Okay, today we have a musical tweet of the day, or as Casey Kasem would say, and now, a trip down memory lane. Are you old enough to remember Tracy Chapman's big breakout hit, Fast Car, way back in 1988? It was a huge hit. The album sold 20 million copies worldwide and was nominated for six Grammys, three of which it won. Now, fast forward 35 years to 2023.
country artist Luke Combs has put out his own version of Fast Car, which now is a huge hit on the country charts. So Tracy Chapman is making a lot of money on the royalties. And she recently expressed her appreciation to Luke Combs. She said she honestly never thought she would have a song on the country charts. So all is well that ends well, right? Well, not if you're Washington Post entertainment reporter Emily Yar. I guess if you work for the Post or the WAPO, or as the late, great G. Gordon Liddy called them, Washington, D.C.'s, how do you say it? Washington, D.C.'s quaint little alternative daily, the Washington beep. You have to find a way to work racism into any story you can, even if it means just making it up. So here's what entertainment reporter of the Washington Post, Emily Yar, says out there on Twitter, linking to her article entitled Tracy Chapman, Luke Combs, and the Complicated Response to Fast Car. She says, as Luke Combs' hit cover of Tracy Chapman's Fast Car dominates the country charts, it's bringing up some complicated emotions in fans and singers who know that Chapman, as a queer black woman, would have an almost zero chance at that achievement herself. Now, I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means? I don't know what that means, but that's not the actual tweet of the day. The tweet of the day is from somebody who goes by uh, Enjoyer. It's kind of like Enjoyer, except with like three extra O's. And it is a visual tweet of the day. Let me, I want to get it right up to the camera. I want to get it right up to the camera. Let's see if we can get it to focus here. Uh, a little bit closer. Too close. There you go. And as you can see, he says, oh, I wish I could keep this still. <laughs> as you can see, he says, if you call this journalism, I swear by Allah that I will shoot myself right here. From an Egyptian TV host. And I just thought that is one of the funniest things I have ever seen. And I, I shared it with a friend of mine who is quite the expert on Islam, and he found it funny also. Um, <clears throat> Yo, why? Why? Because it obviously isn't journalism. That's... That's see, there's the joke. All right. Uh, thank you once again to uh, Mitch Warden and our friends at redriverauto.com for sponsoring today's tweet of the day. Tweet of the day. You've been watching episode 397 of the all new Doc Washburn show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us. Contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier Tenth. Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show.
Bound. That's the way it was. Friday, June 30th, 2023.